Good morning. It's great to be here with you. And in case we have any visitors out there, Gary and Lewis are out of town. So the A team is gone, and you're getting the B team. So if you have any questions, just come back next week. In California, uh, one of the codes, there's a welfare and institution code, number 5150. And that code gives psychiatrists, doctors, nurses, police officers the authority to take into protective custody someone who through a mental illness situation may be a danger to themselves or a danger to others. And so in California, I was out there driving my police car around, protecting uh, Krispy Kreme, Starbucks, and I got a call over the radio to go to a chemo uh, infusion center for a possible 5150. So when I got there, I talked to the nurse who had made the call, and what she had said was, uh, that she had a cancer patient there for his, his infusion today. And she's saying he's talking about life, he's got some things about death, and she was a little confused and thought he needed to be evaluated and maybe taken into custody. Before I went in to meet with him, um, she told me that the cancer that had started in the stomach and the chest had gotten up into his throat, and he could no longer speak. She said his mind works great, so he'll... He'll shake his head or nod for yes and no, but anymore he's going to write down and the conversation will be slow as you get a written conversation. So I went into him, talked to him, and he's first surprised to see a police officer there. And so I started explaining some of the nurse's concerns, trying to talk to him a little bit, trying to ask some questions just to get a sense of where he was. And at some point as I was asking yes and no questions about trying to get a grasp of where he was, he took his pad and he wrote on it and he gave it to me. And it said, why am I alive? Why am I alive? And that could be taken a number of ways. And so I continued to ask him some things about what, what he was concerned about and, and uh, the frame of mind that was there. And at some point he's getting a little agitated and he picks up the pad again and three strong understrokes. He'd underlined the word why. Why am I alive? Because I spent talking t time with him. It was clear, it was not in his mind suicidal thoughts. It was the real question of life, of why am I alive? Is there, in my circumstance, any reason and purpose for me to still be alive? The reason I wanted to look at this Philippians passage today it's because we have some of the key to that question. Because we believers have an answer to that question. But there's some material here that speaks to that. And I wanted to address that today. Uh, whether we're answering other people about that question, or at times we have to answer that to ourselves. Whether we want to admit it or sometimes or not, we are wondering about our own purpose, our own meaning in life. And this passage, I think, opens it up and what, what we face at those deep moments, those hard times in life. And this is when Paul is facing a life and death situation. Paul is in Rome. He'd been in prison for a couple of years in Caesarea. Prison imprisonment started in Jerusalem. 
His case was not moving along, and he appealed to Caesar. He's come across by ship now to Rome, where in the midst of that, an angel appeared and told him he would be standing before Caesar. And so now he awaits in Rome his time before Caesar. But this Caesar is Nero. And before Nero, you do not expect justice. You don't expect the concerns of justice to be addressed. Probably about the year before Paul got there, he had his mother killed. Probably about the time Paul has been in prison there, two years, he has his first wife killed. A couple of years after that, when there are rumors that he started, was involved in starting this fire in Rome that neatly cleared out an area where he had a magnificent building project planned, he chose the Christians to blame and started then this persecution where they were put before animals to die. They were crucified. They were used at night as torches for his entertainment. And about a year after this, he ends up killing his second wife himself in a fit of rage. Nero is a cruel, paranoid man prone to rages of anger. And it would mean nothing for him to take this little religious leader from some dusty corner of his world and get rid of him. He wouldn't think twice. Nero is Caesar. Is emperor, and Nero does what Nero wants. Turning to our passage and how we address that issue of what Paul may be facing, what we may face. I think the key is in verse 19, where Paul will say, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. But as soon as we go there, and I want to get a little deeper meaning of what Paul, I think, is saying, is to recognize or for me to explain to you why I do not accept one of the normal interpretations. One of the interpretations here says that when Paul's talking about his deliverance, he's talking about being released from prison. And the reason for that is Paul then talks about his desire to be bold and life and death. And at the end, he comes out saying that I, because of the needs of that you and your Philippian church, I believe that God is going to let me out and I'll be able to come to you. And so the fact is, at the end, Paul says, yes, I am going to be, I believe I'm going to be let free. And so it's easy to read that back end to the beginning where he says, this will be my deliverance. And so that Paul is basically talking about being let go of prison from beginning to end here. But that view has some problems. Number one, that word deliverance is Paul's usual word for salvation. In fact, Paul uses that word 17 other times. And every other time it is used in the sense of salvation. What happens at death, our final salvation? Or what happens when the Lord returns? And it suggests maybe how he's using that word here. And then he goes into that extended section on life and death. To live, to die, to live, to die, to live. Explaining what that means to him. But if he knows already that he's going to be let out, why does he go there? It's almost a little spiritual showboating, isn't it? Now, I'm going to get let out of prison, but I want you to know it didn't matter if I died or 
No, I think it's a real issue for Paul. Whatever this deliverance is, he says, he, pray, he knows he'll experience this deliverance, but he says, whether by life or by death. That is, the deliverance can happen either by Paul living or by Paul dying, and if it can happen through Paul's dying, it can't be just the release out of jail. Something deeper is being talked about. And even when he comes at the end in 25 and 26 to think because of the needs of the Philippians, he'll be let go and he'll be able to come to them and they'll be rejoicing in his presence. He goes on in the next verse in 27 and it's probably a new paragraph. You may have a new heading. It's separated, but he says, only walk worthily of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in order that whether I come to you or am absent... I can hear, even when he's come to that decision in 25 and 26, that he believes he's going to be let out and come to them, he recognizes he's not the final decider of what's happening. Someone else controls his itinerary. Even more than those reasons, though, and there's a real kicker here, is that in these words, when Paul says, I know that, and then he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Those words were not first Paul's. He's quoting from another text, from a Greek Old Testament text. And the Greek phrase of those five words, this will turn out to my deliverance, are a little bit awkward in phrasing. But they match exactly an Old Testament text. And people often have ignored that. They don't see it. There have been commentaries that do not uh, make reference to it. Or maybe commentaries that sometimes say, well, he's using words from Job, and they go on like it doesn't matter. In fact, I looked in my uh, study Bibles, whether the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the New International Version, and the King James, and none of them had a reference, a cross-reference to the passage where this text comes from. And New Testament scholars have been working in the last 25 or 30 years especially to recognize the dynamics of how texts in the Old Testament play with next texts in the New Testament, how they're used, and that they can evoke more than just the meaning of that little phrase, but a larger sense of meaning. It's like something like this. Say uh, COVID is done and gone. Praise God. <laughs> and we're going to have a real retreat. And we go out to our retreat. Maybe Damon starts this off, and, and Friday night he's going to start and says, you know, we're going to have a couple of songs and John is going to share a few minutes, and we'll have more songs, and we'll go into our teaching. So we do those songs, and then I get up, and now I say, I once was lost. Some of you are already going to repeat the next line. You wouldn't even lose a step. I once was lost, but now I'm found. In fact, you'd go on and do the whole next line. was blind, but now I see. Interesting. All I have said is I am lost. I was lost. And what you're already grasping is I'm not talking about being physically lost out in the woods. I'm talking about a spiritual lostness. That is, unless I was messing with you when I said that. And you know I'm going to be talking about being found. In fact, you expect and hope that I'll spend more time about being found than I was talking about lostness. And you probably, at some point, your mind gets amazing grace. This is really going to be a story about how amazing grace came into John's life and transformed him and what it means. 
You grasp all of that because the text I cited, I once was lost, opens up to you the whole text where that came from. And you reflect on the meaning of the whole into my one word. You've grasped the whole idea of my testimony, but all I said was, once I was lost. Basically, I would say what's happening here, I think, is some of the same thing. That Paul is quoting these words from elsewhere, and they are not just simply the words, but what is happening in the broader picture there. In fact, you'd start making those connections even if I didn't give you the verse and I just told you the book. And I would tell you, this phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, is from Job. And as soon as I mention Job, you will probably start making connections. What's Job about? It's about someone suffering. Is there sin involved? That's what the argument is. The others want to say, all suffering, they fall back on traditional religion. Suffering is due to sin. And therefore, Job must have sinned, and that's the cause. Even though we know at the beginning of the book that God says, Job is blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He rejects evil. I have no one like him on the earth. So the claim that Job is suffering we know is not true. And, and the extent of Job's suffering is not. And we think back of Paul, and here is Paul, who is suffering in prison, not for any wrong he's done. In fact, he's, what Paul will say is, I've been appointed here. God is doing this. This is not because anything criminal. It's simply because I follow God. And in fact, Paul will be at pains not just to say that God is able to work through this, uh, but that this is a deliberate purpose. He is acting, you know, not in spite of my suffering, but he is working through that very suffering. And you'd think back to Job for a minute, and you'd think, huh, it's interesting. Job has these people, these companions that are supposed to be his friends, his comforters, and they're not much of a comfort. They do great until they open their mouths, and then they have to fall back on their traditional understanding of sin and suffering. And they'll tell, tell Job, you're suffering. In fact, the level of your suffering is because you have some really deep, horrible sin in your life that you are denying. You need to get honest about that. In fact, Job's wife does not help a whole lot. She should be a support, shouldn't she? She basically comes out and says, Job, eat dirt and die. Well, actually, she's a little harsher than she. Curse God and die. Get it over with, Job. No, she's suffered a lot, too, and maybe she is blaming Job and some sin that he's done for why she has lost much of what Job has lost. And her husband is this kind of little bag of scabs and open wounds and dirt, and she's had it. Anyway, I don't spend much time there. But if you go into the Christian bookstore and you go into the women's devotional section, there is not going to be a book on becoming like Job's wife. You know, fascinating womanhood, number five, becoming Job's wife. The people that should be comforting Job are adversaries. And we look back at Paul and say, hey, interesting, he is, 
Here he is in prison, and he says that people are preaching the gospel more. And some do it out of a good motive, but some are preaching Christ out of envy and out of division, thinking caused Paul more trouble. What kind of troubles are they going to cause? Paul is facing Caesar for being a religious troublemaker. And now if these Roman preachers get out there and start speaking in a way that they become troublemakers, that does not help Paul's cause. That moves it more toward death. Incredible that Christians could be that way, but they are. Even start thinking about other things. A few verses after the ones I'll quote in a minute. Job says, God, you've put me in stocks. You've put my legs in stocks. You've imprisoned me. Interesting. In his suffering, he feels imprisoned by God. You wonder, what? this is where Paul's been thinking. As Paul's going through his stuff, he is looking at that. Is that the idea of stocks? That's why he sees his imprisonment connected to Job's? And let me go and let me read to you that quote from where Job, Paul takes this statement of Job. And just before it, it's in chapter 13, 16. You don't need to go there. But in third, just before that, he says, Let me have silence and I will speak. Let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job says, this is going to cost me life. To be so bold to go before God to argue, he will slay me. But I am going to present my case before him. And that's when he says, this will be my salvation. My deliverance. Although all our translations here have salvation. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Notice, and, and most of you had probably the singular, it sounds plural, it is, that a godless man will not come before him. Meaning either that when Job goes before God, he's not coming as a godless person before God, or it could be interpreted as that if somebody had deep, dark sin in him, they would certainly not take their case before God. A goddess wouldn't dare to go before God. But he's certain of this um, salvation, this deliverance that is being talked about. In the next couple of verses, it clues us into exactly, I think, what he is talking about by salvation. He said, keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Job knows when he goes before God, God will prove that he is right. He's made the claim that I'm not suffering for my guilt, for my sin. As they say, I've argued against that, and I know I'm going to be shown to be right. If you have the New American Standard or you had the New International Version there, it would say, I will be vindicated. That's what most interpreters take this as in a sense. Job expects to be vindicated by God when his case is tried. If you had the King James Version, you've got justified, to be declared right. That is, Job is certain that when this, when this case goes to court before God, God will show his stance to be in the right. And that's the statement that Paul takes and says, 
I know this will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation. Paul knows that his claims that he is not in jail for anything evil, but in fact God is working through them, and God will verify that. God will prove him right. And that's why Paul is at pains to show that in fact his suffering is producing results. It's not just you know, spending time in jail, but actually the gospel is spreading. He is functioning as apostle to Gentiles, even in this area. He doesn't start back with the trial in Jerusalem or Caesarea, the imprisonment there, where he could say it led me to talk to two governors and talk to a king. He just starts out with what's happened in Rome, and he says, now the whole Praetorian Guard has come to know that why I'm here. They've come to know that I am not here for any reason other than my commitment to the Lord. He says, them and all the others, no small number, that the gospel now is reaching a level in the government that has not yet been preached before. And he looks forward to his opportunity to speak to Caesar. And his only concern, as he's focused so much on ministry, is that he would be bold, as always, to speak forcefully. It's a life and death issue. And if I try to go toward life, maybe if I tone it down, maybe I tone it down a little bit, that goes easier on me. But he asks for boldness to speak before Caesar, to let him know that there is one Lord, and that's not Nero. And being bold may increase his chances of death. And even then, at the end, he thinks, the main point of me being released would be because a church needs ministry. Everything that Paul sees about his life is going into ministry. And oh, that our lives, that our faith would be so lived out in ministry, bearing witness to our call, that we would have that same sense of confidence of God's vindication of our lives in ministry. But it doesn't always happen. One of the saddest conversations, or it begins sadly, I had with a man was in our church in San Jose, a man I knew really just by name and face. He came up to me between services one time and he said, John, you're retired now, aren't you? And I told him, yeah, I've been retired about a year. And he said, how's your retirement going? Clearly the issue wasn't my retirement, but the, how his retirement was going. And I told him, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm, I enjoy this. So how about your retirement? He said, I'm dying. I've been retired three years. I'm 68. I walk around the house with nothing to do. I've got all this time, and I'm bored. I don't like to watch TV. There's nothing to do. In a sense, he's asking, why am I alive? Is there any real purpose left for me? I wanted to ask him a question, but I warmed up with a couple questions before, but I was aiming for the third. My first question is, well, do you like to read? I like to really read and study the scripture and do that. Do you like to do it? No, I don't like to read. Well, do you have any hobbies? No. I don't like to do anything. I said, are you involved in any ministries? 
And his response was, no, I don't know how God could use me. How sad. Here he is, 68. He's been a Christian in the church all his life. Let's say you're an adult at 18, and now he's 68, and I don't know the new math, but at least the old math would say that's like 50 years or close. And in that whole time as we were talking, he'd never had a sense of what God's calling was in his life. He had no sense of a ministry that he could be used in or gifts that could be there. It was incredibly sad. I, I marveled at his stick to really. To go for all that time without some of the stuff that happens when you get involved in serving in ministry? I'm not one of those who feels the Holy Spirit like zipping through me as electricity all the time. But when I sense God most active, is when I'm serving some other people. When you sense that God is doing something or speaking something that is touching another life. In fact, there's where the the real joy comes in, I think. The moments of joy are most often connected with us being used by God and serving one another. Fifty years. Without that, man, that was amazing. But it's funny, that situation changed around really quickly because I started talking to him about some of the ministries our church had and there's it, and we, he clued in on one and he got excited. It was just surprising to me. But he said, I could do that. I, I have the, I've got that ability and skill. I could do that. And actually our conversation only went a few minutes because he was heading off because he wanted to catch the head of that ministry before the next service started. And talk to him about getting involved. And it took about 10 minutes. It doesn't often happen that quickly. But if we will, in prayer and meditation, hear and be open, God will show us. Because what was amazing in his situation, the skills and abilities he talked about having, I think were probably with him. He had those when he was 25. And he's gone all that time while that awareness that God could use him. But his excitement was there now because I have things God can use. Ultimately, our failure in those situations, I think, comes down to issues of identity. We wrestle with identity. And we bring in, it's a huge topic, so skipping over the top. And, and we, we, identity brings in many things to us. Some will say, like, I'm a child of God. I'm a son or a daughter of God. And that's true. That's important to your identity. But we can never let something like that take us away from what Paul sees, I think, as the center of his identity. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. We don't like the word slave. We, we do servant a lot of time. A servant. But the word is slave. And it's not, and what we, we need to allow these to work together and, and coexist, it's not like being this honored position of being a child somehow lets you take it easy on being a slave. Rather, the, what God has done is making us his children. Adopting us means we all the more ought to want to please God with our serving him. 
They don't negate each other. And one of the more helpful people in, in this for me was Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar. Um, and he talks about our idea to be caught up in this covenant relationship we have with God. It's not a covenant relation like this, like two equal partners. It's the top and bottom kind of covenant. But it bounds together in this committed relationship. And he says that covenant relationship turns every question of who am I to whose am I? To whom do I belong? And that will determine everything. When we're caught up with that, we must find our purposes in life, our meaning joined to serving God's purposes. And that service and that kind of relationship is not an option. And when we allow ourselves to be so caught up, our lives caught up in ministering, living out our faith in some way that really speaks and serves other people, we can have meaning, whether we're young or old, or even when our body starts completely failing on us, whether infirmity or disease is racking our body. It never takes away whose am I? To whom do I belong? Michael Card has a little book. You know Michael Card, the singer, songwriter, performer, teacher, moving into scholarship stuff now. You're familiar with him up in Franklin, Tennessee? He's got a little book called The Walk. It's about his discipleship under uh, Dr. William Lane. And Michael Card, before when he was counselors in high school, the counselors he asked him, what do you want to do in college? And he said, I think I will do forestry. I mean, don't they have people that need to go out and count the birds? Because <laughs> his goal was, let me get out of nature and as far away from people as I can get. That's happiness for him. How he changed. <laughs> and no little bit of it is because of Dr. William Lane. Dr. Lane had been up in Gordon-Conwell. He's a top-notch New Testament scholar. One of the top seminaries at Gordon-Conwell outside of Boston. Uh, even some of his commentaries on like Hebrews, two volumes from the 70s, are considered some of the best stuff available still on Hebrews. His commentary on Mark from 90 or 91 is one of the top commentaries in the Gospel of Mark. And he was fully into scholarship and he loved that seminary community until he went through a divorce. He did all he could, he says, but he couldn't stop that. And so he thought, I will never be teaching at a seminary again and working and training young people for ministry. But he got picked up at Western Kentucky University about a year before Michael Card got there. And he began teaching backgrounds, New Testament languages, and some of those things. And when Michael Card there, Michael got a, Card got hooked up with him and spent time with him. And this discipleship relationship grew and grew. It lasted 25 years close, intimate relationship. At some point, um, 
William Lane wanted to was called and wanted to become the dean of or, or yeah, dean of the School of Religion in Seattle Pacific University, a major Christian college out in the West Coast. And he told Michael that he was there, and they continued their relationship by phone or when Michael's on tour and visiting each other and so on. And so he'd been there a number of years, and at some point he calls Michael Card. And and well, earlier Michael Card already knew that he had cancer, and he wanted to keep his working. He did his, worked and stuff as long as he could in his his career, his writing, his teaching, and so on. But at some point he calls Michael Card when he's got a year or two left. His body is failing. And he tells Michael, I want to come to Franklin. I want to live near you. He, and Card was surprised. He says, why didn't he want to go up to the Bowling Green area where he's working with the church for so long while he was teaching, interim pastor for like 10 years there, this inner city church that he loved they would love to have him back. Or why didn't he want to go back up to Boston area? He was still close to those. And he was wondering it. And what William, excuse me, what William Lane said to him is, I want to show you how a Christian man dies. I want to show you how a Christian man dies. He's taught him everything else he knows. Think of it to be at the point where you are facing death and you know what it's going to look like. It's a painful process and a slow process. And and you think, how could God use this? How does this fit into a life of ministry? We don't have to be those people who ask, why am I alive? In Christ, we have purpose. We have meaning, even to the very end. Let me show you how a Christian woman dies. Let me show you how a Christian man dies. For I know that this will turn out for my vindication. Father, despite stumbling words and stammering, Pray you would speak to our hearts. That you would call us to yourself in service and that we would hear and that we would live out our identities in this body. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you, John.